0: This is Task Force Zen Radio, and I'm its host, John Crotech, advocate for humankind, education, and commerce. We are on a mission to create human healing on a massive global scale and to tell the stories of people who have dedicated their lives to making our planet a better place to live. We have a really special guest today on Task Force Zen Radio. It's a person who I've been talking to for several weeks. I met her through a mutual friend, I do believe, on LinkedIn. Her name is Jennifer Whitaker, and it is the English spelling, um, not the German spelling. I just was schooled on that, and I learned something already. Now, Jennifer is a very special person. She is an empowerment strategist. And you might be thinking, whoa, what does that mean? We're going to find out more about that and what that means. She really has a heart of gold, bigger than the entire planet. And she wants to help fellow human beings, men and women, young people, older people, people everywhere that may need help through these transitions in their life when they feel doubt, when they feel lost, based on whatever reason. Jennifer wants to help people navigate through that and empower you she's got so many credentials i got to tell you that her her credentials is like the declaration of independence there's a lot here so this person is a person that is on a serious mission she's got a ba and ma and mlt and mnt i'm not even sure what those all mean but what they do mean is somebody that's very sincere about learning the skill sets to take people to the next level in their lives she has training in somatic experiencing compassionate inquiry myofacial release therapy she's got like a hundred thousand hours in that craniosacral therapy nlp neuro-linguistic programming reiki which has been around forever subtle energy and therapeutic touch energy psychology energy medicine shamanism aromatherapy which has also been around for centuries. Um, All of these things are modalities and subject matters that don't really get, or they're beginning to get, the uh, exposure that they need. And people like Jennifer, who are on the cutting edge of these innovative and traditional modalities, is a person you wanna know. She is also a certified instructor for the Body Language Institute. Body language is something that I don't know much about, but I'm sure I'll learn more. She has taken NICA, or N-I-C-A-B-M, courses on depression, anxiety, shame, anger, never feeling good enough, avoidance, and perfectionism. I know a little bit about a few of those subjects. And not only does she do these things professionally, she also has a lot of other things that she does in her non-professional life. She loves to read. Non-fiction topics. You should have known. She this helps her to enhance her work. She loves neuroscience, quantum physics, abuse and trauma, cosmology, the the study of personality types, uh, human behavior, consciousness, psychedelic therapy, and just self-development all the way around. And that's just to name a few. I'm very humbled and honored to have Jennifer Whittaker here on task force and radio thank you jennifer for being here
1: thanks for having me john and you have already pointed out uh one of my childhood coping mechanisms
0: <laughs> okay which was that
1: uh, which was burying myself in a book
0: <laughs> <laughs> easy to do when you have those yes, things yeah
1: that was my uh my denial and avoidance and how i found my self-worth when i was a kid was by Losing myself in a book or learning something and, um, and countering a, a lot of what I was told when I was a kid. I was, I was told I was stupid a lot when I was a child. And I, so that's part of my dysfunction, actually, is to prove to myself this lifelong mission to prove to myself that I'm not stupid. Um, So, And you understand abuse and trauma, so this is my coping mechanism. I'm turning it into something good. I've turned my coping mechanism into something beneficial.
0: And what an inspiration. You know, I can relate to being called stupid. Um, Mm -hmm. I can relate to being lost in uh, books. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of them as well. Mine was more biographical presidents and famous people. But I do get that. And and yes, it was a matter of avoidance. And and it was also a way that they didn't bother me when I was reading. So it was a way to just escape.
1: Yeah. So it's something that it saved us when we were kids, because when we were wrapped up in a book, we weren't getting yelled at, we weren't in trouble, we weren't <laughs> attracting the attention of our parents. So it saved our asses when we were kids. And then when, we, when I got to adulthood, um, I turned it around and I started um, using my love for learning because I really have developed a love for learning and I love to teach as well. And um, I turned that into trying to figure myself out. So that's where a lot of my credentials came from, was me seeking um, relief for the anxiety and that generalized depression and overwhelm and all of those confusing feelings that I brought from my abusive childhood into adulthood. So I was trying to sort that out. And that's where so many of my credentials came from, was my own journey into self-help and healing.
0: And it's great because, you know, we had that conversation and I love your candor and I love your honesty when you say, you know, I'm not really an expert, but I have lots of experience. And mm-hmm. and I think that that drive from those childhood episodes and experiences that uh, that gets embedded somewhere in your DNA and in your mm-hmm. case, in your heart, and that's mm-hmm. the direction that life takes you into. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about your mm-hmm. childhood. Okay, Tell us a little bit about you and your family and, and were some of the roots for some of these things that has spawned into such magnificent work. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about what, what was going on in your household.
1: Okay. Um, well, when, when I was born, um, I, I was born into a family where both of my parents were abusive in very different ways. Um, my mother was passive aggressive and she had the, the type of personality where, um, she would triangulate. So she never went to my father when she had a problem with something in the marital relationship, she would turn to her best friend and talk on the phone for hours. Or she would, you know, call her mom or her mother-in-law and talk on the phone and, and get other people involved and get people on her side before she would approach him. She needed to have that little army behind her. So that's, that's passive aggressive. That's triangulation. That's not we have the
0: same mother. Do we,
1: Possibly. (laughs) And, and she was also the the type of person that would mutter things under her breath that only you could hear. Mm -hmm. And then if I would speak up and retaliate, because I was a a child at the time, if I would speak up and retaliate and, you know, get her to try to leave me alone, then I ended up being the bad kid. I ended up being in trouble because nobody heard the little biting remarks. I am confident, like 100% confident. She used to do this to my father. And my father, um, has a level of patience to an extent. And so he, he would hold things in. He doesn't know how to manage his emotions um, in a healthy way either. So he would hold things in and it would just build up steam and build up steam and build up steam until he would go into this explosive rage and just blow up. Yeah. So it was this constant cycle in our house. Sometimes it was every few weeks there would be a blow up. Sometimes a few months would go by. And the, the calm in the house, a happy calm evening was really uncomfortable because as as a child, I didn't consciously know this, but you could, you could feel it in your bones. You know how, when you can feel a storm is coming. Absolutely. Um, it, it was the same thing in my house. You could just feel that the storm was building and it was coming. And so when I got into adulthood after having that childhood, um, I was really uncomfortable around nice, healthy, calm people who weren't equally as abusive as my parents. So I ended up very quickly, early in life getting um, sucked into abusive relationships myself. Like my high school boyfriend was abusive. Um, you know, the uh, my my husband, my ex-husband, he wasn't the healthiest person to be married to, nor was I at that point in life. I mean, I was just a basket case. So, um, I've come to learn the value of, uh, understanding our emotions, what our emotions are trying to communicate to us. Because once you go into the study, a little bit of emotions and figure out what they're trying to communicate to you and what they're trying to do, then the emotions don't take over and start to control your thoughts and behaviors. And that's been really a relief. And I've learned that um, in my adult life. And that's really helped me turn things around. And it's been a combination of all these credentials that have helped me do it. Because some of them were more successful for me, others not so much. Some of them, um, I didn't find a lot of benefit personally. And when I share them with clients, my clients find benefit in them. So I keep all these tools, even though some of them I might, I might not use myself. They're so valuable. And it. It takes a different tool set for everybody to get through this.
0: I think that's a great point, Jennifer, because, you know, and I've said this to people myself, you know, you know, Rita, there's there's lots of self-help programs and books out there. And I always say, you know, read them, you know, gain knowledge. And, and if you see a program that works for you, use it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to adhere to everything that you read, because if you exactly. make a mistake, which we all will. You know, it starts that cycle again, and it's, oh, it doesn't really work, or, oh, I'm never going to make it, or or, or like you, you mentioned earlier, I'm stupid and I can't do it. Mm-hmm. If there was one word that could sum up that type of childhood, what would it be?
1: One word. Um...
0: If I say, how did you grow up, what would be the one word would say, hey, this is how I grew up, that would identify with that type of trauma, because it is trauma to -hmm. grow up in that environment, and it becomes embedded.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. Um, The word that comes to mind is pretty obvious, dysfunctional.
0: (laughs) There you go. Well, you know, mine was very close. Mine was confusion. Yeah. You know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you tell the truth, you get in trouble. Right. If you don't tell the truth and they find out something that you did as a child, you still got in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so confusion, dysfunction, yeah. all these things, you know, and then you go into carrying on the family tradition because obviously right. your parents picked it up somewhere and mm-hmm. sooner or later somebody comes along like a person like you and mm-hmm. says, enough is enough. I'm not going to continue this cycle of, as we've commonly called it, bullshit.
1: Right. And I'm glad that you said what you just said, because it's so easy to pass this on to the next generation and not know that we're doing it. We don't intend my I don't believe that either one of my parents intended to not only be dysfunctional, they certainly, I don't think, intended to pass their dysfunctions on to me. Um, They didn't have the skill set themselves. And when I look at their parents, it's no wonder that they didn't have the skill set. I mean, my mom's mom was one of my abusers. And now my dad's parents, um, I remember them fondly from when I was a child. But they, you know, they both died when I was relatively young. You know, I, I was seven when my grandma died and 13 when my grandpa died. I was also 13 when my mother died. So that was a rough year. But anyhow, back to the um, how things get passed down, that has to do with our implicit memory. And implicit memory, the first three years of life, we are learning so much information, but our brain, our cognitive brain, is not online yet. Very few people have memory recall before age three. Um, And it's roughly age three. It's somewhere in that three to four range where the average person starts to have memory recall. Some people will have these little memories or little flashes of, oh, gosh, I remember this when I was two. But they very rarely remember big chunks of time or big chunks of things that happened prior to that. And part of that is because the hippocampus is not fully formed um, until about three and a half years old. And the hippocampus is. Um, really important whenever it comes to memory recall so how how do we learn so much in those first three years if we're absorbing and you know like the the brain grows at an exponential rate in those first 90 days of life and it's through implicit memory so the body remembers through sensation and emotion So the sensations that your body is experiencing in those first three years of life and the emotions that you're experiencing those first three years of life get imprinted into your cellular and tissue memory. And as we get older, those that cellular and tissue memory becomes reactions. So we might be in a situation and the body will that. Implicit memory will go hey, I kind of remember this situation. Let's bring up anxiety or let's bring up fear to get her to react the way she did, you know, because this saved her before. So it's like, um, I liken this type of memory to code, um, computer code, Mm -hmm. you go in and you manually, you know, write the code. And once the code is written, the code is written. It doesn't change itself. It's not the algorithm. It doesn't learn by what you click. It doesn't learn. It's algorithms can learn. Um, our implicit memory can't. So if whenever you get into adulthood and you notice these childlike behaviors that are still showing up, um, like me hiding in the closet and reading books, um, you know, that that's something where in my early adulthood, I would go into avoidance or reading the book that I had my nose in was more important than talking to the person that was sitting next to me. So I brought that into adulthood in a very unhealthy way. Um. And once I realized it was unhealthy, I started to turn around and make it a beneficial um, behavior for me because it turns out I really do love to read. Um, My strongest archetype is that of the student teacher. So I'm not sure I could be happy if I'm not learning because I really love it. (laughs) And um, so but anyhow, uh, we can change our implicit memory in adulthood. It takes dedication. It takes dedication to yourself more than anything. And the commitment to work on yourself to do it, because it's like Pavlov's dog. Um, You know, if if you treat yourself, or if you treat a dog the way you would treat yourself, that dog's going to be horribly misbehaved. You know, if if we think about how we talk about ourselves inside our heads. So, and it takes some discipline and some work to start talking to ourselves differently inside our own heads. And that's paramount in getting better.
0: And I'm I'm glad... And I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, we've talked about it doing the homework and, mm-hmm. and doing the homework does take a commitment. You know, we've yeah. talked and mentioned rock bottom, you know, when you reach rock bottom and, you know, yeah. where does that take you? There's only one place to go. But in order to do these things and you and I know we've talked about this, how there's so many programs and books out there and tell you how easy it is. Just, you know, just change your, just stop right where you're at and just change this thought process. Well, sometimes that's easier said than done. And mm-hmm. the proverbial word here is, is dedication, like you mentioned mm-hmm. yeah, and discipline. And if you're willing to confront those courageously and authentically and honestly, then you stand a chance,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, cause we've talked about this, Jennifer, you and I, how, yeah. you know, Oh, it was a bad week last week or it's not a great day today, you know, these triggers Mm -hmm. seem to pop up and, right. And, 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 you know, things, the pain that we deal with gets different. Mm -hmm. I don't think the pain goes away, it gets different.
1: It does. Yeah, it sure does. And, um, and learning to work with myself, and learning to get through some of this, um, what I realized is, Just hearing you say what you said, I used to be one of those people, like maybe 8, 10, 12 years ago. I was one of those people who said, oh, this is all you got to do. All you got to do is just stop or just decide and just make up your mind. And then looking back, oh, my God, that was such BS. I was barely scratching the surface of what it means to heal at that point in my life. I wasn't digging deep. I was just scratching the surface and fitting in with all my other friends who were doing the same thing and it gave us something to talk about over a glass of wine and something to <laughs> laugh about over dinner or lunch. I and what I really started to do a deep dive into my own healing when I got into shamanic work um and I started getting into like um work that addressed complex post traumatic stress like somatic experiencing, compassionate inquiry, things like that. OMG, (laughs) like you're going to have to face yourself. And that's that's when you have a dark night of the soul. And, you know, everybody likes to talk about the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, which so many of us do in our lives. But nobody talks about what happens to the damn caterpillar. The caterpillar wraps itself up into the cocoon and it turns itself like it dies. It doesn't just grow wings and come back out. It goes into this like disgusting goo and it completely transforms itself. Metamorphosis is not beautiful. (laughs) Like if you were to open that cocoon in the middle of the metamorphosis, it's disgusting in there. And that's what, that's what we go through in the healing process. That's part of our rebirth.
0: And it's not topical. You mentioned a couple of things earlier about code. Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: And, and it's true. And that's why it is a difficult journey because, you know, in order to decode a hard drive, that's been coded and been, running for so long becomes habitual, you know, the world of addictions and, you know, self-limiting beliefs and all the buzzwords that we read about, you know, these are real human uh, experiences.
1: Exactly. And if you have you ever reformatted a hard drive?
0: It, 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 I haven't, but I've because read about it. Yeah, it's I not have, easy. Yeah,
1: I have reformatted external hard drives, and I've reformatted my laptops before. And you just have to brace yourself for all the shit you're going to lose. And that's exactly the same thing you have to be willing to do as you step into transformation. You have to be willing to lose a lot of shit about your personality. Plain and simple. Plain
0: and simple. You know, one of the things, and this might, you, I know you can relate to this, but anybody out there listening, you know, one of the things that was the byproduct of traumatic brain injury for me was sleep deprivation. And I'm, and with post-traumatic stress, it's a, it's a byproduct.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And for literally five years, I got a minimum of maybe, or a maximum of maybe three hours of sleep a night, mm-hmm. ending one period. And I found myself waking up at odd hours of the night and turning on every light and walking around in complete desperation.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And one of the therapists in cognitive behavioral therapy that I, she recommended that if that happens, wake up, turn on the light in the bathroom, look at yourself and tell that person how much you love them. Mm -hmm. And I thought this lady, my therapist is just nuts because I've never, ever, considered oh I gotta love myself or what is she talking about (laughs) (laughs) so even so I was alone you know at that time anyhow so I I got up I looked around (laughs) it was funny I mean not the time I guess but I looked at myself and I said hey I love you then I even looked around the room wondering is anybody watching this (laughs) you know is this real and over a period of time I got to the point where I'd love that person more and more and more Mm-hmm. And you start, and I think when you just mentioned recoding the hard drive, that's some of it. Mm-hmm. These positive affirmations. Yeah, they're absolutely. Not, they're not cliche. They work.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. When, when done, I, I don't know that positive affirmations um, just in and of themselves work all the time. I, th- I think it depends on the trauma. Um, I know with my, my trauma, I have a really high ACE score. Have you guys talked about the ACE test? Are you familiar with no, that? No, what, what is okay. that? So the ACE test stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So anybody out there listening, you can just Google ACE test um, or Adverse Childhood Experiences test. There are 10 questions on it, and that's it. And every time you say yes to a question, you give yourself a point. And it, and it takes people through 10 of the most common adversities that children experience in their home. You know, like was, was, did you have a parent that was an alcoholic? Um, did, was, were you abused when you were a kid? Um, were you, you know, sexually assaulted when you were a child? And, um, so some of these things, did anybody in your family go to prison? Um, so some of these story or some of these types of questions that we all have stories about, um, show up on that test. Each time you give yourself a point, um, or each time you say yes, you give yourself a point, and each time you have a point, it increases your chances of developing a mental health disorder, or a chronic illness, or some horrible disease in adulthood. So, for example, um, if you have a score of three or high, uh, a score of three, um, I think your chances of getting a mental health diagnosis when you're an adult um, increases by 340 percent. And each time you have a yes, it gets higher and higher and higher. My score on that test is an eight. They're questionable on one of them. I you know, maybe I should be a nine, I'm not sure. I haven't had somebody like talk me through that question to find out if my answer is right or not. So I have a super high score. And it really like my sense of normal was so distorted. In some in some Some ways it still is. Um, I haven't uh, considered being in a relationship where I'm dating for a few years now because it's something where I just don't feel like I'm ready to step back into that um, type of relationship in my life because I need to get some more stuff straight in my own head, for example. So I recognize I have more healing to do before I'm ready to go there again. And um, so that's one area where I don't feel like I have my head fully straight yet. Anyhow, um, it's, it really does. It distorts our sense of normal and it makes it harder sometimes to relate to other people. And I've sat in therapist's office so many times in my life where I felt like the therapist was patronizing me. I wasn't on board. Um, it didn't feel like they could even relate to the level of trauma that I'd been through. Um, I've had therapists tell me that, um, I didn't look depressed like what depression look like? Look. Yeah. I know there's supposed to be a look to it or you know or you don't seem depressed or you know you know just stupid things. So it makes it, it makes it sometimes more difficult to find people to relate to um, whenever it comes to the healing process. Did you ever experience that finding somebody good that you could relate to? You know, on that relatability. Absolutely.
0: You know, it's like when you grow up in chaos, dysfunction, whatever you want to call it, confusion, you do have a distorted sense of reality. Mm -hmm. You know, is this normal? You know, like for me, you know, it shows about you. But for me, you know, what do you do when when you're when you find out that your mom has had relations with your high school friends? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? That, yeah. That's a trauma. I Maybe have that's, no idea. That's yeah, a point. I have no idea. But let me say this. First of all, thank you for sharing that. And mm-hmm. uh, But let's get real. You did manage. You're, you were a mother, and you raised a child. Mm-hmm. You're always going to be a mother, not were. You are a mother. Right. And so you managed to raise a child, even with all the dysfunction. Mm-hmm. You somehow had the fortitude or the common sense, the intelligence to know that you had a role to play. Mm-hmm. And how do you think any of those dysfunctional things affected you as a mother? And I would imagine you're probably a darn good mother. Can, do you have any words on that, you think, or any insights into that?
1: Um, I don't know exactly. I, there was always this drive inside of me not to be like my parents were. And there were a lot of times in my son's life where I, you know, when we would have some of these tough conversations that parents have with their kids, uh, like the drugs conversation, for example, um, where I came out of those conversations going, wow, I'm not getting any mother of the year awards for that. Um, and then I come as, as he gets older and I get further on in life, I realize that I did the right thing and I had no idea I did. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, when he was in 6th grade rumors started to circulate that you know drugs were in his school and i was hearing rumors all over the place and i'm like okay we need to sit down and talk about this and my approach was i remember what it was like to be your age and for me to expect you not to give in to peer pressure is just bullshit parenting advice at some point you're going to give in so whenever you do give in And whatever that substance is, my only request is that you do your homework ahead of time Um, because I know that over-the-counter medications, which is where I got my aromatherapy certification, um, we don't do well with over-the-counter medications. So things like NyQuil do not put me to sleep. I'm wired and bouncing off the walls all night long, zero sleep whenever I take NyQuil. Benadryl gives me paresthesia where I feel like I have bugs crawling under my skin. Horrible. So because we get these weird side effects um, like um, you know, for colds and coughs, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. I feel like one of those cartoon characters with my heart pounding out of mm. my chest. And that's with the 30 milligram, tiny little red pills that it's almost impossible to find, like the 12 hour extended release. Forget it. Can't do it. Um, so my conversation with him, because he has similar side effects, was if we can't take the stuff that we can walk into a pharmacy and legally buy over the counter, you might want to think twice about taking the shit that's cooked from it.
0: Hmm.
1: And he sat there and he looked at me, you know, he's only in sixth grade. And he said, mom, are you telling me to smoke pot? I said, no, I'm not telling you to do anything. I said, however, when you get to a point when you are ready to give in to peer pressure, that's probably you're going to be your safest option. And I left it at that. And I walked away feeling crappy for the next Two or three months, every time I would think about that situation and think about that conversation, going, Oh my God, what did I do? Um, and I didn't realize it until a couple years later that by remembering what it was like to be his age and remembering how uneasy I felt around peer pressure, and I almost always gave in to peer pressure because it was more important for me to fit in than it was to stand up for what I thought was right whenever I was a child, because I didn't fit in at my house, I needed to fit in somewhere. So I, I always gave in to my friends so I could fit in somewhere in life. And that felt really horrible. And I remembered how bad that felt. And that was the only way I could relate to him. So it turns out that apparently that is a good way to parents because it's relating to your
0: kids well it's it's, it's authentic <laughs> it's an, yeah it's authentic and honest and you know we talk about you just said the culture and fitting in and you know yeah. how all human beings want to be accepted we're, we're communal animals um mm-hmm. we're societal animals and but what i think what's happened in cultural i guess I don't even know what you would call it, but in being in the culture, I think that what we've, what we managed to do is we lose the intuition. And in some of the, the mm-hmm. you know, there are many times in my personal life where something didn't feel right, but I did it anyways to fit in. Yeah. Or, or to, to put that, you know, you talked, you mentioned the dark side of the soul. That's when you get to that rock bottom place or that real switch. But yep. there's so many times where, gosh, this doesn't seem Right. But I'm gonna do it anyways because I gotta fit in, or you know, and with the type of trauma I went through, it was a it was a um, a journey to drag my knuckles to prove my manhood and how the guys proved their manhood. Um, and then what would happen is when you would become intimate with the opposite sex, mm-hmm. of course, it's nice, but the intimate part of it you know nothing about you're just fulfilling this manhood role and you Mm -hmm. end up breaking somebody's heart when you don't answer the phone call when she calls once or twice or half a dozen times Mm -hmm. and so these things that we do against our own intuition end up becoming the very bane of our existence and Mm -hmm. and then we become critical and all the things that we talked about that are not true begin to become self-fulfilling prophecies and this is also cliche, it seems these days, but it really isn't, mm-hmm. because it's what happens. And right. how does intuition and all the stuff that you've done, Jennifer? How does intuition mm-hmm. play into it? And do you have any? Tell us the Jennifer Whitaker insight on intuition, especially <laughs> since you've done shamanism and, and mm-hmm. uh, psychedelic um, um, mm-hmm. things like that. Tell us how that works.
1: Yeah, and um, I am a huge fan of intuition and getting in touch with your own intuition. And um, intuition is often called gut feelings. Um, there, and there's a difference. I, I personally found it incredibly valuable to learn the difference between a gut feeling and a strong emotion. And that was, it, it's so simple. And at the same time, it was a revelation whenever it was taught to me and I figured it out for myself. So a strong emotion, I had made so many decisions in my life based on my strong emotions. And whenever we're in a strong emotional state, we're not thinking because a strong emotion will shut down your cognitive brain. doesn't matter if it's on the um, depleting and draining your energy side of emotions like anger or grief or depression. It doesn't matter if it's on that end of it or if it's on the other end where you get into like euphoria and love. Like, how many times have we fallen in love with the wrong person and barked up the wrong tree for how long?
0: <laughs> you remember that part in that movie, Romeo and Juliet? Have you ever seen the movie?
1: Um, Which version? Well,
0: the the, the original version. I Or, you know, the, I can't even remember that. But I remember, it's funny, and this is just kind of a sidebar, but I remember the part of the movie where they're singing the song about the rose will bloom, mm-hmm. you know, love will fade and they're kind of like magically going around all the adults. Mm -hmm. And then they had this chance encounter by this pillar behind what's Mm -hmm. going on. And when you talk about euphoria and whoever the the director was and these actors and actresses were just brilliant because they were able to show Mm -hmm. that strong emotion and love the feeling of love and that love at first sight. And, oh my gosh, everything, the world doesn't exist, but that person, right? That's They were able to show that. And I, and I think that that's sometimes one of the strong emotions that, mm-hmm. that can lead you down the Absolutely. non-intuitive path.
1: Absolutely. And it's probably the most insidious one that leads us down the non-intuitive path, especially if you have trauma in your background. Because the whenever you get infatuated with somebody and you start to fall in love with somebody, then the traumatized person will ignore every single red flag. Meanwhile, all of our friends and family are standing back going, uh, what's she doing? Doesn't she see that this is not going to work out? Like everybody in my life could see my relationships were doomed from the get go, mm. but me, because I was following my strong emotion. Well, a gut feeling is a quiet knowing. You just know there's not really this overarching emotion. There's no anxiety attached to it. It's just this Quiet knowing that, you know what, I'm in this relationship and it's not going to work out. And so a lot of times I went into relationships based on the strong emotion I was feeling and I came out of relationships based on the gut feeling. And then once I figured out when I was following what, that was a game changer for me. Because when I have a strong emotion and now that I know what I know about it and I've been through the experience with myself. So I've experienced my strong emotions. I've experienced the, the path, the wrong path that that takes me down for myself. And I've experienced pulling myself out of it. So because I've gone through that a few, a few times, I'm better and better and better at not, I guess, being groomed and sucked in by those strong emotions anymore, because it almost is a grooming process, you know, where we just blindly follow, you know, the, the strong emotion.
0: It's true. And, and you know, and, and so many times that we've read in these programs, you know, about intuition and how to connect with that intuition. And like you said, it's the gut feeling. And, it, and I know there's something genetic, you know, it's DNA. It's, you know, and, and that's I think that that is many, many times trauma. People have experienced trauma with addictive personalities or the addictions that they pick up. Those are the reactions that that I think it just works off the emotions. And I think that if you go with the intuition and again, easier said than done, uh, yeah. I'll be the first to admit that strong emotions have sometimes ruled my life mm-hmm. and many people's lives. But if you can connect with that intuition, are there any practices that you can think of that can help uh, a human being connect, mm-hmm. connect with that? Is there, is there is there a practice or something that you can do?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite ways to connect with the intuition, um, a lot of people don't like, but I, I've really, um, started to dive deep into this work and it's shadow work. Um, and going into shadow work, which is learning to communicate with your subconscious is essentially what shadow is and shadow, um, uh, I guess for maybe an easier to understand definition of shadow, shadow is anything that you hide from the rest of the world that you try to keep inside and you don't share freely with the rest of the world. And according to Carl Jung, 90% of the shadow is pure gold. So we're not hiding like 10% of what we're hiding is our shame and our fear and maybe something we've done in life that we're not so proud of that we don't want other people to find out about. 90% of what we hide from the world are our talents, our gifts. And I am so guilty of this because, again, I grew up with this belief that I'm stupid. I grew up with this belief that I'm not good enough, um, that I'm not capable. Those are things I learned when I was a kid. So because I have this belief, things that I really want to go out and do in the world I have held myself back a lot because I have bought into those beliefs. So I've stayed small and I've hidden some of my talents and I've hidden some of my gifts from the rest of the world. And I'm just now starting to bring them out, um, through, you know, some of the stuff I talk about on my podcast and through my empowerment strategy program, because it turns out that, uh, I, I think I told you this before, like I've sat in a lot of therapist's office and realized that I have a better understanding of trauma through my experience of it than they do from their textbook education of it. So the textbook education doesn't necessarily give a person the skills that they need to help somebody who's lived through some of the stuff that I've lived through. I mean, I've, I've met therapists who have zero ability to relate to some of the stuff I lived through as a child and I found myself in therapist's office saying what I thought the therapist wanted to hear
0: or you end up therapizing the therapist you know
1: yes exactly Exactly. case study
0: number 340 yeah
1: Right. Exactly. So those are ways that we hide from the world. I mean, like I would go into my my therapist's office when I was younger and my shadow would take over and I would hide the real reason I was there and not be fully honest with my therapist about why I was there. Um, and, you know, there are a couple reasons for that. Um, one of the other big reasons is I and I it took me a long time to sort through this one, too, was realizing that I had problems with authority and I brought that into the therapist's office. So, you know, there, there's a power differential between you and your therapist, uh, because you're going into your therapist's office and a lot of times they're, they have a master's degree, a lot of times a PhD or even a medical degree if they're a psychiatrist. So you, you have somebody with, you know, years and years and years of education. And because of the type of trauma I lived through, that was incredibly intimidating to me. So I was also a people pleaser. That was a, an adaptive mechanism that I brought out of childhood. So you bring in problems with authority, with people pleasing, and that's where the dishonesty came from. And me even trying to hide from my therapist, I was reaching out for help and there wasn't this safety or attunement. And that's one of the reasons I work as an empowerment strategist. I put a lot of thought into, am I gonna go back and get my PhD? Because I considered it for years. And I decided not to so I can help on a peer-to-peer basis other people who have those power differential and problems with authority like I had because I recognized how hard it was for me to find good help. And it wasn't until I started working with shamans, who I considered more my peers, not my superiors, Um, not that they didn't have more or different education than me. It was the way they approached me in their practices. Um, They they were able to set up an environment in the the treatment room, wherever we were working, where I didn't feel like I was being looked down upon. They really knew how to set safety and attunement and really connect with me. That was a game changer. And that's what I've been focusing on for the last several years is setting up that same type of environment for my clients who like me had problems with authority and who really held back with their therapists because they felt like they were being judged. They felt like their therapists were looking down on them. Um, and it, somehow it, it was up to me to get better. So my therapist could feel good about his practice or her practice. Um, that never felt good. Like how they felt about themselves in their practice somehow hinged on whether I got better cause they had a vested interest in my outcome. That didn't feel good either. Um, which was a little bit of projecting because they're not all therapists are healthy.
0: <laughs> no, it, it's and, it, and, and these are complex issues. You know, a couple of yes. things that you hit upon number one is the honesty, the personal honesty and integrity and, and being able to be candid and, and talk about such things. And I think that you have to talk about them. Yeah. You know, you talked about the shadow self and, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that, too. There's been many times where I've been around professionals that I just told them what I thought they wanted to hear or whatnot. And right. one thing that you really I think is really cool is that a guy told me, you know, John, that when you're in that place, when you're not when you're beating yourself up and self-doubt and you don't give to the world uh, those types of skill sets that can help people, you're actually robbing the world. Mm-hmm. And and I, when you said that, Jennifer, it just reminded me of that. That I, I like the way you said it. it was pretty eloquent. 10% is really not what it's about, and it's the 90% of hiding your skill sets that can really mm-hmm. truthfully help others. And yeah. when you get right down to it, all human beings want to be accepted. Mm-hmm. We all Absolutely. want. We all want to be loved. We all want to be cherished. Some people may not admit that, but come on, guys, let's right. get honest. Mm-hmm. Even as guys, you know, we have this persona we have to have. And, you know, mm-hmm. and if you're weak, oh my gosh, heaven forbid. And it's, and then women have right. a hierarchy too. And, mm-hmm. but, I, and I think it boils down to that honesty, mm-hmm. that honesty to get real, to be the one, like you said, we, you don't want to continue on the family tradition. We can laugh about it now. Mm-hmm. but it's still painful to think about of the years that maybe we were robbed. But we can't fix that. All we can do now is deal with today and and discover these skill sets and, and interconnect and create networks and learn mm-hmm. as much as we can. But it does start with that honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad you pointed that out because All if right. you're thinking about seeking um, help from a person like you or anybody out there that – runs in these circles if you will if you're going to go and be dishonest Mm
1: -hmm. then
0: don't waste your time or your money right are there techniques that people can use to be honest how Um, does that happen
1: techniques to be honest is is that it's just doing it um because when i was being dishonest um i was In in some cases, I didn't realize I was being dishonest in the in the situation. I knew I was holding holding back, or I I told myself the story that I just wasn't telling all the details of the story, or we'll talk about this today and we'll leave this part out. Um, So that's how my dishonesty showed up. It wasn't that I flat out lied. I left things out or um, skewed the details a little bit to you know make it sound better or different than what it really was, Um, and. It, it it's just doing it and it's really really uncomfortable and when i started sitting in with my shaman and telling the truth i couldn't get through my stories for the longest time without coming to tears like i i had i was crying through telling my stories because it was so scary to speak through the fear and that and that's what you have to do you have to be brave and vulnerable enough to to speak your truth and to say what you had what happened to you or to say what you're afraid to say because it is so powerful to tell your story and have somebody witness it and have and, and not be judged when somebody's witnessing your story that's where the healing comes in so a lot of it has to do with the person that you're with if your therapist doesn't have the ability to create safety and attunement. And attunement is the connection with you. If you don't feel connected with your therapist, or if you don't feel safe with your therapist, um, like relaxed and open, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, So that's one of the first things I start with with my clients is awareness. Like, let's talk about the sensation you feel in your body. Tell me about the emotions you're feeling. And a lot of times that takes several sessions of coaching to get people to start to identify with their emotions and sensations. What happens more often than not is I'll start to work with a client and I'll say, tell me what's happening for you right now, or tell me what you're feeling right now, or tell me what's activated in you right now. You know, asking them if they're anything's upset and more often than not, I'll get an answer like, well, I'm feeling rejected because of this fight that I had with my husband, or I'm feeling you know, really worthless because of something that my boss said to me, like I'm not good enough. Well, rejected and worthless are not feelings. Those are perceptions. That's the story you tell yourself. So I've got to get below the story I, that people tell themselves because it does nobody... Any good, It doesn't do any of my clients any good if I validate the story of abandonment because that reinforces the perception that I'm being abandoned or I'm being rejected or I'm not good enough because, um, you know, my work is never good enough. So I've got to get people below the story to get to how does your body experience abandonment? How does your body experience feeling not good enough or feeling worthless, like what sensations come up for you? Is it tightness in the chest? Is it pins and needles somewhere? Is it that punched in the gut feeling? Or do you feel like you can't breathe? Um, for me, whenever I first started telling my truth and my, I was into tears, um, I would get really, really tight through my whole chest. I would feel like I couldn't breathe. And I felt like it. there was nothing there, but it literally felt like there was a hand on my neck that was clamping down and it made it hard to speak like it i had the impression and i don't remember being choked as a child or anything like that so i'm not sure where that came from um and if that was a memory an actual tissue memory i've blocked out the cognitive memory if it is implicit um so but anyhow my my throat would really constrict and it was Mm -hmm. difficult to speak when i was feeling that constriction in my throat and i still i really had this patient person sitting with me who just gave me time and gave me space to find the words. And sometimes it would take a really long time to get my, to get out what I needed to say. Um, And that's how I got through it was being, allowing myself to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to say what I needed to say, despite the fact that I was scared shitless when I was doing it. And I was like, it was overwhelming fear in the moment and I can't express how much better I felt afterwards because as tight and tense as my body was in that moment after it was all over and somebody had witnessed it and it was still okay. When it was done, there was this huge release and relaxation in my body afterwards. And Oh my gosh, I slept that night so well. It was the best I'd slept in months leading up to that.
0: Well, I'm sure you did. And you know what you pointed out, what this brings to mind, you know, when you're dealing with these emotional feelings and, and events mm-hmm. that you've never dealt with in a, in a therapeutic or a healthy way, which is mm-hmm. what therapy's getting at, it's going to bring that. And those mm-hmm. tears are, are just years and years and years of pent-up frustration and anger right. and, and all of these right. feelings that, you know, you never had an opportunity to really experience a normalcy what's normalcy but a normal emotional subset of experiences i don't even know Mm -hmm. you know you never you know like we we, like you mentioned it earlier on in the show you didn't know i didn't know millions of people Mm -hmm. don't know that haven't been there or have been there right what normal is
1: there there is no normal that's a myth (laughs) that's a myth exactly yeah it's a total myth
0: and we talk about the culture scape vision you know with the the code of the extraordinary mind. And, you know, we all have different names for the culture, but you know, work hard, you'll get somewhere. Well, you know, you can reverse that really work smart. You'll get somewhere you work hard. You're liable to get locked into a job somewhere that you never get fulfilled. And and you're miserable your whole life. But right. you know, now that you're growing up and you're going through these um, pivotal points in your life emotionally and, and you know what your situation is, where do you see, Jennifer Whittaker in 5 years and if you could leave a legacy what would it be?
1: Um where do I see myself in 5 years? I don't know. That's a good question. Um I got to be honest John, I typically don't do my goal setting that far ahead. Um I do my goal setting in smaller chunks um because uh when I when I look at uh how I used to goal set, you know, like 3 years down the road, 5 years, 10 years down the road. That was another thing that increased my anxiety. It led me to believe there's a destination. So I'm like, okay, this is where I am today. Where do I want to be in a couple months? So let's set little goals there. Um, so I, I set them almost like uh, instead of focusing on the mountain on the horizon, which is going to take me a while to get there, I'm going to focus on the next pit stop where I fill up and then I'll gauge where my next pit stop is going to be after that so i focus on the journey now
0: well that's a good so, point you know there's yeah, a there's a nepalese yeah. saying in mountaineering
1: mm-hmm. and you
0: mentioned a mountain just brought this to mind and then we'll get to your legacy answer but okay you know slowly slowly
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's what the the nepalese uh, sherpas talk about you know if they were to drop you on top of a mountain in a helicopter without going through the hardship of the climb mm-hmm. you'd be dead within six minutes because you're on the summit and you're not acclimatized properly. So what they say is slowly, slowly, a little bit at a time, a little bit of time, you acclimatize and then you make it to that, uh, that place. And so yeah. that's a good answer you had. So small, tiny steps that are measurable, yeah. but also something that's not going to make you feel more anxious. So right, the legacy uh, so we're gosh, working on what, one. I know we are.
1: What legacy do, would I like to leave? Um, I, I guess that if I if I could have my ideal legacy that I would like to, to leave, um, it, it would be to um, help educate and change minds about trauma and abuse and what it is um, and to help educate and change minds about mental health. Um, there are so many diagnoses, uh, mental health disorder diagnoses, and I'm kind of air quoting here because I'm not a big fan of mental health diagnoses. Um, (laughs) I, I fall under the, um, Alice Miller school of thought. Alice Miller wrote the book called the drama of the gifted child. Um, and she, uh, she postulates the theory that really any mental health diagnoses are all just natural adaptations, defense mechanisms, coping mechanisms, you know, like we talked about hiding in the the closet with your nose in a book that saves your ass in childhood. That is a coping mechanism. That is for, for most children that would not be their first choice of what they want to do. Children are active. Children want to go out and play. They want to, you know, be active during the day. It's not to say no kids love to read because some do, but most kids want to go out and play and get dirty and, you know, explore their world. That's how they learn. And when you get yelled at over and over and over again, you develop this coping mechanism. And so coping mechanisms that come from childhood can include anything from that person that's just chronically nice and chronically kind all the time because that could be a coping mechanism on how you don't get in trouble with your parents or being the good girl and being the perfectionist, because you bring home straight A's all the time and you stay in favor with your parents um, or you're the star athlete on the team. And look at how many parents say to their kids things like, well, gosh, you know, you, you got a B. why can't you be like your sister? She got an A um, or why? What do you mean you want to play piano? Why can't you be like your brother? He's the star of the football team what do you mean you want to play piano? What are you going to do playing the piano? You know, so stuff like that. Like we, and we find these coping mechanisms that help us. So you might have this kid that has a love for playing piano that ends up being a really, really, really good athlete because they were pushed into it by their parents. It's not what they want to do, but it becomes a coping mechanism. And then we get into these career paths in adulthood that we hate and, or we get into these situations that we hate. And then we have to unwind that and unlearn it and go through these, equally traumatic experiences in adulthood. So what I would like my legacy to be is for people to realize that it's not about pointing fingers. It's not about blame and shame. Our parents thought that by pushing us to achieve something better, that they were doing us a favor. Um, Turns out science and research is showing that that backfired a little bit. Now that we know better, it's time to do better. We learned our lesson on that one. And so that, that would be the lesson is, you know, once you know better, start to do better because people are so resistant to change and they're so resistant to changing their behaviors. They're so resistant to questioning their own beliefs. And, you know, really our our beliefs are things that we bring out of childhood. And if you don't question them, then you have these beliefs that you acquired sometimes when you were three, four five years old and you're still, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old with little kid beliefs. Why not question them? Why not put them to the test to see if they even hold water in today's world? (laughs) Exactly. So that would be my legacy, like to get people to start questioning what they think, question what they believe and stop pathologizing it and start to normalize it. Because these really are, if you want to talk about normal, everything we're talking about is more normal than the makeup and, you know, the, the facade and all the other superficial stuff that people get into, you know, like the, the. Workouts and the bodybuilding and the fingernails and hair and all that crap i don't I don't know. I don't care about it.
0: <laughs> you know it's kind of funny because one thing to play off of what you said, there's the opposite to that too. There's acting out, mm-hmm. getting in trouble and the bad boy, the bad girl,
1: yeah, this absolutely. and that. Well,
0: you know if I'm stupid and i'm and I'm dumb and i'm I'm just a troublemaker, well, why not yeah play that part? You know, you know you're only you're only really para living or paraphrasing what your parents and those around you have taught you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And in childhood, it is so much easier to come to the conclusion that, wow, I'm not good enough. There must be something wrong with me. I must be the problem than to conclude that, wow, my parents really don't have the skill set to be good parents and raise me the way I need to be raised.
0: Imagine that. Huh?
1: And, yeah. and and. Parent, you know, my parents don't have the skills to give me what I really need. They don't have the skills to get to know me on the level that I really need parents to get to know me on. And so kids, first of all, don't have the capacity to come to that conclusion. And even if they did have the capacity, the way we're wired, we probably wouldn't because that is too painful. Because when it comes to mammals and birds, not so much reptiles, but when it comes to mammals and birds, and this is all mammals and all birds, you really need adults to help you get through your first, you know, little bits of life. And for humans, that's several years. Most other animals, it's not quite so long because, you know, a lot of other animals are born with the ability to to walk pretty quickly or birds in a few weeks can start flying. We can't do that. So, we need guardians. We need adults in our species, you know, full grown adults to take care of us. And physically, they do take care of us for the most part. It's emotionally and psychologically where we fail miserably in our culture in taking care of people. And it turns out the emotional and psychological aspects of who we are are really, really important.
0: And you start to see it too this, you know, instant self gratification and uh, Mm -hmm. you know, road rage and, 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 you know, not being able to put your phone down for an hour, you know, and things like that. And, you know, so we touched upon a lot of subjects today and I know that you were very candid and honest and I definitely appreciate that. I know the listeners do too. We're going to talk again. I know that. How can people, how can people reach you, Jennifer? And, and, you know, if they want to ask questions about how they can, you know, utilize your services to live a better life, Tell mm-hmm. us, tell us that.
1: Um, my website is com, and it's Jennifer spelled normally with two N's and one F. Um, Whitaker is W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E. So it's com. There's information on my website about my empowerment strategy program, which is a little more along the lines of customized coaching. I don't use protocol coaching. And one other thing I, I just got recently that is not in my biography yet because I uh, honestly haven't updated it. Um, I'm now officially a HeartMath coach mentor. So if anybody's heard of the HeartMath Institute out of California, they are putting science to the woo-woo. So it's uh, breathing techniques that are essentially an energy management system because the breath can be used to either restore your energy um, or deplete your energy. So, so many of us just in our daily lives, we breathe really shallowly, you know, kind of from the clavicles up and the, the heart math breathing techniques, can help teach you different ways to breathe that can help renew your energy and put you back into coherence. And there's a lot of science behind it. And I am really, really excited to be wrapping that into my program. Um, So it's yet another skill set and another set of tools I can add into the program. And I customize the program to the client that I'm working with. So it's kind of hard to explain because I customize it so much for people I'm working with. So for example, um, I have a three-month program, a six-month program, because the work I do is really a deep dive. And if somebody wants to work with me on um, one of the programs, for example, we'll sit down and we'll talk at the beginning before we really get started and sort out what works best for you.
0: that's a great explanation. And it's so valuable to have somebody that really cares about what they're doing. And obviously, what you described today, Mm-hmm. Speaks volumes about you as a person and about your abilities, especially with all the tool sets and all the things that you keep adding to it. To at least find different methodologies. I don't know if I want to use that word, but you know, practices. You know, thank you for being here. We're gonna we're gonna carry on the conversation and down the road. And I know that we're not done. I appreciate you as a person and being on our show today. And ladies and gentlemen who are listening, anybody out there, uh, you know. You can tell Jennifer is a person that you want to reach out to if you if you need the help, and and I can tell you she has the skill sets and the desires to to help you. And gosh, life is good, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it is.
0: So it is. You all have. Thank you for pointing that out. You all, everybody has the power to change, and it's important. Mm-hmm. And change is like the caterpillar that you described in that chrysalis. And but when it's all said and done, and you get all the sticky goo, as you put it off of you. Imagine how you can take flight and we can use this analogy and how beautiful it's going to be. And Yeah. I appreciate you so. Thank, thank
1: you. Thank you. I appreciate you too, John.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Task Force Zen Radio. Through education, we will raise global awareness, create more balance, perpetuate human healing and diminish suffering in our world because humankind matters.